I want to talk this morning, I want to build on a little bit from last week. I want to talk about absorbing and reconciling. So if you want a title, you can call it absorbing and reconciling. And um, I want to build a little bit on this idea of God being king and explore a couple of the ramifications of that. Um, I said this last week, the message of Easter is that God is already king. That's what Easter is all about, really. It's the day God became king. And um, uh, for Paul and the early church, they had a, they had a creed that was very simple, uh, a different way of calling Jesus was king. They proclaimed Jesus is Lord, and we said that that's actually taking kingship a bit further because kingship is about being sovereign, but lordship is, is someone who has supreme authority. Uh, your Lord is someone whom you belong to and someone who has the power of deciding for you. And so Paul and the early church took this idea of king and then took it further, possibly because, and possibly very deliberately, because there was already somebody who was called Lord in their day, and he was Caesar. So Caesar is Lord was a common refrain. And so they went, well, actually, no, Jesus is Lord, which also meant Caesar was not, which was high treason at the time. Uh, He didn't say Jesus was Lord easily. Um, He said it with fear for your life. But of course, they continued to declare that Jesus was Lord. And actually, we said this last week, that to to suggest that Jesus is not Lord is to really deny the reality of Easter. In the same way that denying Boris Johnson is not the Prime Minister of England and whatever else he's Prime Minister of, doesn't stop him being Prime Minister. He just is. It's 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 a fact. Jesus is Lord of all the earth. It's just a fact. Uh, and um, the better question is not then, is Jesus Lord of my life? Well, he just is. The other question is, to what extent are you acting like he's Lord? Um, and of course, the kingdom of God advanced so quickly in the early church because when they said Jesus is Lord, they meant it in every way. In every part of their lives, he really was Lord and they really were willing to commit high treason in order to see the kingdom come. So it's no surprise that it sped very quickly everywhere it went. But we said this, our task then is not about putting Jesus on the throne. He already is on the throne. The task is about uh, taking everything else off the throne of our lives. If you remember, I had a big throne here and I had, I had all the tailors on it and, and Andy was Jesus and he was all covered up by everybody else because that's really what our lives are like. There's everything else that's on there that stops him actually being Lord. Um, but of course Jesus is king of his kingdom but the other part of Easter is the way that he became king and announced this new kingdom reign is also the pattern for how the kingdom comes on the face of the earth so it wasn't just that he, he necessarily died although of course he did do that but, but there was a way in which he died that is a template for how the kingdom comes and of course, we've, we've said many times, the principle of the kingdom is that death brings forth life. That's the principle of the kingdom of God. And that in order to see my life, you've got to first experience death. Um, but I've understood more fully in, in recent times, when I've, when I've just thought and pondered and read and prayed about the cross and the resurrection, like I've started to see just what that really means in that sense. And so I want to remind you this morning why Jesus was killed, not, not theologically, but just practically as a story why he was killed. And, and, and the, the thought about that, and then I want, want to go on and talk about a couple of ways that we might want to respond if we want to see the kingdom come. 
why were so many people desperate to kill a Jewish rabbi from Nazareth called Jesus? That's a question you've got to ask when you read this. Like, why did they want to kill him? Uh, I don't believe that God made people kill him. I don't believe God makes people kill people. I don't believe God puts hate in people's hearts so they kill people. There was a reason that Jesus got killed. Um, and it fulfilled the plan of God, but it wasn't that God kind of went, we are, I'm going to put hate in your heart, so you're going to kill him. No, he got killed for a simple reason, in that if you read through the stories, you see that it's Jesus' claim to be king that upset everybody. That's what upset everybody. Jesus was killed by those who were terrified his claim to be king would upset the status quo. So Luke 23, 25 tells us, after the crowds chanted for Jesus' death, Pilate handed him over to their will. In other words, Pilate went, well, if you want to kill him, you can kill him. So who killed Jesus? Well, the religious elite killed Jesus. The Roman Empire killed Jesus. Judas killed Jesus. The Bain mob killed Jesus. All these people killed Jesus because he was going to threaten the status quo. He said he was king. And there can only be one king. So if you're king, and all your power and might rest on you being king, you want to get rid of any other king. It happened when he was born. Do you remember Herod? Tell me where he's born, the king of the Jews, so I might go worship him, in brackets, kill him. Because there can only be one king. And so God, in his incredible love and desire to make sure we got the message about love, sat back and allowed his son to be killed. Jesus knew all along it would happen, and his love was so great that he allowed it. The, the power of the cross in one sense is not so much in the fact that Jesus was killed, but that Jesus and the Father allowed it to happen. That that's the other side of the power of the cross. Jesus himself in Matthew 26, 53 says, I could call down, this is my paraphrase, I could call more than 70,000 angels down to help, but then you wouldn't understand how much you were loved. Jesus didn't have to die. He had a much bigger army, much more power, much more control, much more strength than anything the Roman Empire could throw at him. But the key is this, it's how he used that power that's powerful or didn't use it. You see, Jesus' death took place in a world where power and control were key. Jesus claiming to be king meant he threatened that power and control. So the power and control responded in ways it knew. More power, more control. That's what power and control does. Once it gets power, it tends to use more power. Once it gets control, it tends to want more control. And then that tends to creep. Happens even today. So when those with the power and control... And those who use that power to gain the upper hand, to get their own way, to line their own pockets, then when Jesus comes and challenges that power and control, he models what it means to bring the kingdom. Next slide, Matt. Because Jesus met power, control, and violence, not with power, control, and violence as everybody else did, but he met it with submission and peace. And rather than retaliate, he absorbs all the violence into himself, and in the process brings reconciliation. You see, Jesus wasn't the first rabbi to claim he was the Messiah. There were many other people around the first century who claimed that, but they all met violence with violence. This was a difference with Jesus. Everybody else met violence with violence. Everybody else wanted to overthrow the Romans with violence. But as, as we know throughout history, when you meet violence with violence, you just get more violence. That's why every, every war ever has just resulted in more violence. Because when you meet violence with violence, you get more violence. But think about this. When violent words meet violent words, you get more violence. When violent hearts meet violent hearts, you get more violence. But the path to bringing the kingdom is laid out for us by this sense that Jesus met power, control, and violence with submission and peace. And rather than retaliate, he absorbs all their violence 
into himself. When military might and the religious elite and a puppet king felt power and control being threatened, they responded with violence and more power and more control. You only have to look at your world today to see that that is still true. It's just true. When power and control get threatened, they send out more power and control. Nothing's really changed in 2,000 years. The cross, therefore, or one aspect of the cross, is about humanity's anger, cruelty, violence, and longing for retribution. And do Jesus responds to this? Does he fight back with his own power? No. Even though he has more power, he has more than 70,000 angels available, this is not about who has the most power. That's Jesus. It's about how you use that power. And about a more powerful tool than violence and retribution. And again, you only have to look at history. People like Mandela to see that the more powerful tool is not violence. The more powerful tool is the opposite of violence. And that brings something that lasts. But every time power meets more power and control meets more power, it just goes more out of there. It just gets worse. But Jesus meets violence with silence. Jesus meets anger with meekness. Jesus meets power and control with forgiveness. He absorbs the wrongs of others into himself so others can walk free of the consequences and actions of those wrongs. Now, you and I are called to walk the same path because that path leads to the same place, to restoration, redemption, and reconciliation. Jesus wasn't just, he wasn't just on the cross saving you from your sins. He was showing you how the kingdom comes on the face of the earth. He was showing you what it means to bring a whole new earth and a whole new heaven onto the earth. A few days, a few years, a few days, a few years after the death of Jesus, Paul would write these words in 2 Corinthians. All that is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people pills sins against them, and he has committed it was a message of reconciliation. Okay, there's a theme in those couple of verses called reconciliation. But Paul's going this, okay, so when, when, when Jesus does this, when he absorbs, when he chooses not to retaliate, when he chooses not to respond, when he chooses not to meet violence with violence, when he chooses not to meet hatred with hurt, and chooses to absorb it into himself, and in doing so does that for the whole world and all the hatred and all the violence of all time into himself, he also says, this is how I want you to live. And again, you only have to have a cursory reading of history to see that it works and don't work. But Paul says God was reconciling the world to himself. That's what God was doing when he allowed Jesus to die, reconciling the world to himself. And then he says that he gave us the ministry of reconciliation and committed to us the message of reconciliation. So that means you have a message and ministry of reconciliation. If you know Jesus, you have a message and a ministry of reconciliation. Which of course is even more challenging in our culture right now because we are more irreconciled than ever before. We are more divided than ever before and there's much more lines to be divided about than ever before. And we live in a culture that says you have to be here or here. You're a Brexiteer or you're a Mania. You can't be anything else. You're one or the other, according to our culture. You pro lockdown or anti-lockdown. You can't be anything else because you've got to be in one of these two camps, according to our culture. And if you say a certain thing, then you must be in this camp. And if you say a certain thing, you must be in this camp. 
you are pro-vaccine. On all these things now, there's like, it's black, it's white. You either are, there's no middle ground anymore in our general culture. There's just you this or you that. But listen, you are a kingdom people in a kingdom culture. And we must understand the culture we're in and fight against it strongly. Otherwise, it will overtake us. But you have a message to share and a task to accomplish, a message of sharing reconciliation, a task to reconcile people. Well, reconciliation means bringing people back together. The exact opposite of splitting people apart. And our culture right now is very good at splitting people apart, causing people, demanding that you sit in a certain camp on a certain issue, and then sharing lots of hatred if you don't sit in my camp. That's kind of where the world's at right now. But you have a message of reconciliation. So you don't carry a message of separation. It's not a message of division or disconnection, or breaking apart. On the contrary, it's about bringing people back together, restoring, redeeming, and wholeness. Which, as I say, is quite challenging these days. But I, w- I want to explore for the rest of these next kind of five, ten minutes how we do that. What does it mean for us to be a minister of reconciliation? Just a couple of practical things. Well, firstly, quite simply, as Ellie said, it's not, it's not complicated. You follow Jesus' example. Well, what did Jesus do? Well, the cross is the greatest symbol of how we bring reconciliation. It's about absorbing and reconciling. So on the cross, Jesus chose to absorb the violence, the hatred, the mocking, the sin into himself. He didn't reflect it back. He didn't go, let me take all this and then I'm going to shove it back on you so you can shove it back on me so we can play tennis with hatred. He just went, no, I'm absorbing it. Well, we'd live in a different world. If instead of tweeting back about it, we just absorbed it, wouldn't we? I mean, Twitter wouldn't exist if we absorbed it. It wouldn't. But that's what Jesus did. He absorbed it. He didn't fight back. He didn't sling a hand grenade back. He didn't say, well, let me tell you my opinion and why you're right and why you're wrong. He just absorbed it. He meets anger with meekness. Violence with silence. And when I say violence, I'm thinking about the violent words. He, he, he had literal physical violence, which most of us don't thankfully suffer, but we all suffer violent words. Words that violate us. And of course, everything in you wants to go, well, let me tell you what I think. But the message of Jesus is to just absorb it. He meets power and control with forgiveness. He absorbs the wrongs of others into himself so others can walk free of the consequences and actions of those wrongs. That's what it means to live as a kingdom people, to walk in the way of Jesus. That is how the kingdom comes on the face of the earth. And living in, living in this way is twofold. Well, it's multiple fold, but two things I want to talk about this morning. Firstly, it means we follow Jesus in choosing not to use any power and control we might have to retaliate in kind. So Jesus had all the power. He wasn't powerless. He could have done whatever he wanted. He could have wiped the whole earth of every Roman dead in a moment if he wanted to. That wasn't the issue. The issue was he understood, if I'm going to bring the kingdom, I have to move in an opposite spirit and an opposite way. And that means not power and control by more power and control, but going, okay. It means when harmful words are spoken, we don't speak harmful words back. It means when we are overlooked, we choose to invite. 
When we are excluded, we choose to include. When we are rejected, we choose to accept. So good, this kingdom life, isn't it? Eh? It's fantastic. But you see, you see, this is why we don't see much of the kingdom. Because most people, well, most people don't actually get taught this, but actually, in, in essence, this is why it is. That's what it means to bring the kingdom of God. It means to live like Jesus. That's what it means to absorb the violence of others into ourselves, just as Jesus did. It's the only way the kingdom comes on the face of the earth. And of course, it means we move in forgiveness to those around us. That's how you absorb it, because you don't, you don't take it into yourself. When you forgive, you take it in and then you pass it on. When I say absorb, I don't mean, oh, I'm going to take all the pain. I'm just a punch bag for everybody. No, forgiveness means you take it and then you pass it on to the one who has already born it. You don't bury it inside. That's the worst thing you can do. When you don't send it back and you don't pass it around, you take it in, you go, okay, that hurt, that was painful, but I'm going to choose not to retaliate. I'm going to forgive and I'm going to pass that pain on to the one who already bore it for me and it was already taken the weight of it because I can't carry it. Tim Keller wrote this about forgiveness. You are absorbing the debt. You are taking the cost of it completely on yourself instead of taking it out on the other person. It hurts terribly. Many people say it is a kind of death. Yes, but it is a death that leads to resurrection instead of the lifelong living death of bitterness and cynicism. Yes, it is a death, but a death that leads to resurrection instead of the lifelong living death of bitterness and cynicism. Living in this way is living in the light of the cross of Jesus. Yes, it costs, but it's a way of life that leads to resurrection, new life and new creation, and it's the only way to bring the kingdom on the face of the earth. Just imagine if every time somebody read something on social media that they didn't like, they just went, ah, oh, forgive you. I mean, literally, the shares in Facebook, and it did just plummet. It wouldn't exist in a few years. That might be quite a wonderful thing. But... But do you understand me? Like, literally, those companies are making money out of retaliation. Twitter makes billions out of retaliation. And sadly, there's a lot of people who say they love Jesus that are doing the retaliating. Well, that's got nothing to do with Jesus. Nothing to do with Jesus. But not only do we observe the violence of others, but we also seek ways to, always to reconcile, to bring together, because we have a message and a ministry of reconciliation. Now, before I say this, I'm not talking about everybody agreeing with everybody. This is a different thing. It's about loving one another, despite the fact we think differently. That's what it means to be reconciled together. Hey, we can all have different views about everything, but when those views divide us rather than we come together, that's the problem. We've got to learn to disagree and love one another that's where we've got to be. That's what it means to reconcile. You might think very differently about something to me. Hey, that's fine, but we can still love each other in the process. One of the ways we can do that is by what I call calling out the gold as opposed to calling out the grit. And I, I actually want this to become a bit, of a, a bit of a buzzword in our house, okay? Calling out the gold rather than calling out the grit. And... And this is hugely challenging in our world and culture right now because, as we've said, there's so much division, polarization, separation, and it's, it's kind of either or on the issues of the day. Uh, not only that, but we live in a culture that seems to value the grit more than the gold. And by the gold, I mean anything good, and by the grit, I mean anything not so good. So our culture seems to value the grit over the gold. 
And if you dare highlight the gold in somebody, the good they do, it won't be long before somebody points out the grit. And then says, you can't say that about them because of this grit. So hence you get people pulling statues down and all sorts of things because, hey, there's this grit in the life. There's all this gold as well, of course, but there's this grit. Well, we, we, we've got to cover over the gold. We've got to forget all about it because there's a little bit of grit. So we're going to just forget them all together. Okay, well, there's one thing we can say to that, which is this, look in a mirror. And tell me if there's not gold and grit. I mean, if our culture continues down this road, and, and if Christians continue down, there won't be a Bible. What are you going to do with David? Murder, adulterer, plenty of grit. Moses, murderer, plenty of grit. Abraham didn't trust God, slept with his mistress instead. Didn't, loads of grit. Well, if you're not careful, you don't have a Bible left. Because history is full of people with grit and gold. But we've got, to, we've got to be aware of this. Because now, if you call out the gold in somebody, you, people go, because it's either or, you're either pro somebody or against somebody. If you call out the gold in somebody, it's like, oh, well, you must agree with everything they say. No. No, they're a human being. Of course they've got grit in them. But they've also got gold. And I'm allowed to say they've got some gold in them. Like any, anybody who's mature, understa- actually anybody who's just normal, understands that we have gold and grit. But it's like today you've got to justify why you're calling out the gold because you know about the grit. Of course we know about the grit. They're human beings. Of course there's grit. It doesn't take a genius to work out there's grit in somebody. But listen, there are plenty of people who are willing to point out the grit, but kingdom people will always point out the gold. They will always point out the gold. And we've got to ask ourselves, how good are we at pointing out the gold and how good are we at pointing out the grit? Because pointing out the grit has no place in a kingdom culture. It has no place in a kingdom culture. Think of how people are written off entirely because of the wrong decisions and choices, the grit. And people simply refuse to even acknowledge the possibility there could be gold in there. Or the grit is, is weightier than the gold. That's where our culture's at right now. The grit's weightier than the gold. Well, it's a good job Jesus don't think like that, isn't it? It's a good job the Father don't think like that. Because if the Father thinks the grit's more than the gold, we're all in trouble. We've got to be alert and alive to the culture in which we live. We must learn to celebrate the gold in others and thank God for it. But let's be clear, just because I celebrate the gold doesn't mean I condone the grit. Let's not be so naive as to think that that's what happens. Let's, let's give each other a measure of understanding that we're not dense people. Like, let's not, I, I, it seems our, our cultures like fall into this dense place where like, you, no, come on, let's treat people as the bright, intelligent human beings that everybody is. We shouldn't have to talk with caveats all the time we talk about the gold. I refuse to caveat everything I say just to, just to make sharp. Listen, I will call out gold in people whilst always acknowledging there's grit in everybody and anybody. But as a kingdom person, I'm looking for gold. I'm trying to see gold. I'm looking for it. I'm calling it out. I'm seeing it. I'm going, okay, there's gold there. I, I love that. That's fantastic. I don't have to go, oh, yeah, well, there's a load of grit. Yeah, well, well done, Sherlock. <laughs> no, but really, think about it. 
We, we are always pointed out some grit. Oh, because there's nobody else in the world who can do that. But there's not many people who can point out the gold. Let's be a people who point out the gold. If I call out the gold in somebody, understand that I acknowledge this grit, but I live in a kingdom culture. So I'm going to call out the gold wherever I find it. But I won't be calling out the grit because I don't believe that calling out the grit in people publicly is part of a kingdom culture. Of course, there are a couple of exceptions where we might call out the grit. Of course, if we're chatting one-to-one in a discipleship relationship, we're, we're, we're hunting for the grit. That's the point of discipleship, to turn the grit into the gold. So of course we're going to talk like that. If somebody's invited me in and asked me to help them, of course we're going to do that. And of course, in that discipleship relationship, if we're talking about how I've been hurt by somebody else, well, we might talk about it. That's different from moaning about somebody for 10 minutes. And I just have to say this, because I want us to be a people who also refuse to listen to somebody calling out the grit. I won't sit and listen to anybody who just wants to tell me how terrible somebody is. I'm like, I don't want to know. First of all, I've got eyes. I can already see. Second of all, I don't believe that's doing anything. In fact, I think when we call out the grit, we, re- we, we reduce the kingdom of God. We re- it retreats. And when we call out the gold, it advances. We've got to be a people who call it out. Of course, there are some people, a very rare breed of people, who do have a prophetic gift to the church to point out where the grit is so we might pray about it that it becomes gold. So there are a few people who actually have a gift to see grit and call it out and go, this is wrong and that's not right and we've got to pray into that and believe that. But that is very few people that have that ability and gift. And of course, those people are, uh, they are accountable to those that they're accountable to. But that's not many of us who have that gift. Which means that for most of us, we shouldn't be calling out great. Listen, you have a message and a ministry of reconciliation. And one of the ways we share that message and move in that ministry is by calling out the gold in those around us. So we have to ask ourselves, are we calling out gold or are we calling out grit? Are we celebrating people or are we crushing them? Calling out the grit separates and divides is the exact opposite of reconciliation. But the kingdom advances when we call out the gold and it retreats when we call out the grit. We cannot afford to call out the grit in others. Neither can we afford to be silent when others start calling out the grit. We can't afford to be silent. We've got to be people who stand up and go, no, you are not calling out the gold right now. You're calling out grit and I don't want to listen to it. And you know what? Sometimes that might mean walking out of the room. It might mean putting the phone down. It might mean ending the conversation. But that's what I'll be doing. It's what I have done. It's what I will be doing. Because I refuse to listen to somebody who just wants to tell me about how terrible somebody is. Again, if they're going to tell me about they've been hurt and they want to work it through, that's different. You know the difference. If you sit and listen and don't speak up when others are calling out the grit, you are permitting the kingdom to retreat in front of your eyes. And I refuse to allow that to happen. Don't do it. Call them out. Let them know you refuse to see the kingdom retreat in front of your eyes. And let this house be known as a house that calls out the gold in all those around them. Amen? We've got to move forward into a place where this house is a house that is as a renown for calling out the gold. Of course, in the private place, we'll deal with the grit.
We acknowledge the grit. We acknowledge it's there in all of us. And we're all working on it. But let's be renowned as people. Just imagine if you were the one in your workplace that was renowned for calling out the gold. Imagine if you were the one in your family who was renowned for calling out the gold. Imagine if you were the one on your street and everybody went, they just see good in everybody. You'd probably get called all sorts of names, naive principally. But you know what? Hey, let's call out gold in people. Let's see it, look for it, call it out, and let's refuse to be those who call out the grit. Because you have a message and a ministry of reconciliation. And calling out the grit does the exact opposite of that. Listen, I want to pray. And I want us to, first of all, just say sorry to God if we have been people, and we have all been people at times, that have called out the grit rather than the gold. But I feel like that little phrase, the grit or the gold, has got to become something that becomes part of our family. It's like a little phrase that we've got where we can just challenge one another and speak to one another and talk to one another. Grit or gold, grit or gold. In our homes, around our dinner tables, around whenever we see each other. It's got to become a cultural thing. So, Father, we want to come before you and we want to thank you for your example on the cross, Jesus. That you absorbed it all, Father. You absorbed the pain, you absorbed the violence, you absorbed it all, Father, that reconciliation might happen. And Father, we want to say sorry when we have called out the grit, when we've talked about the grit, when we've thrown the grit around. Father, we want to say that we are sorry. We repent before you, Father. We repent that we have allowed the kingdom to retreat in our conversations because we have not called out the gold, but we've called out the great feather, we say we are sorry. And Lord, we are asking that with your grace and our determination, we will be renowned for those who call out the gold. Father, we pray that you'd help us have eyes to see, Father, to see past the grit and into the gold, to see that gold that sits within each and every person, that we would be a people who celebrate one another rather than crush them a people who call out the gold everywhere we see it. And Father, I pray for strength to be able to stand up against those who occasionally fall into calling out the grit. Would you strengthen us, Father? Strengthen us, Holy Spirit, to be bold enough to challenge those because we want to be people who see your kingdom come. Father, we bless you, we thank you, we love you. In Jesus' name, amen.